Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On our program today, church apology. As a Catholic, I am deeply disappointed by the position that the Catholic Church has taken now and over the past many years. Will the Catholic Church apologize for its role in the residential system in the wake of the discovery of a mass grave of 215 unidentified children? What needs to happen now with the investigation? The National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, and the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief, Bobby Cameron, weigh in and then immediate action. We will be there with the Kamloops in all communities across Canada affected by missing children and the legacy of residential schools and the intergenerational trauma it inflicted. Why did the federal government wait so long to allocate money to find more mass graves? Will the government force the Catholic Church to release all their archives and documents? The Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller, joins us on that. And so does the lawyer who has represented thousands of survivors of sexual abuse in the church in places like Boston. Mitchell Garabedian, who was portrayed in the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight, is here on how to get at those hidden church records. All that, plus the scrum weighs in on the new mix and match vaccine strategy. Is there even enough data to go ahead with the plan? The lead vaccine doctor in Manitoba, Dr. Josh Reimer, joins us on the scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Death cast a long shadow over Canada's residential schools. Those are the first words in this. This is volume four of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 2015 report. It's actually called The Missing Children and Unmarked Graves. This report gave chilling details of the extent of the death. Mass graves across the country, like the one found last week in the Kamloops Residential Institution. We don't call these places schools because that's a disgraceful distortion of the term. We know that there were probably lots of sites similar to Kamloops that are going to come to light in the future. And we need to begin to prepare ourselves for that. Now, Justice Murray Sinclair, who you just saw there, oversaw the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he knew all about what was going on. He knew that in over 30% of the cases, the government and the schools never even bothered to record the name of the child who died. And in 50% of the time, they didn't even bother to record the cause of death. These kids were literally erased. But nothing happened until Kamloops. Finally now, the local RCMP confirms a file has been opened to investigate saying they will continue working closely with the First Nation community leaders in determining the next steps. Well, Justice Sinclair says the RCMP is already making things worse. They are now beginning to question those who have made this story available. And unfortunately, uh, in typical heavy-handed and ham-handed police way, they are simply intimidating people rather than helping them. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church, which ran that institution and over 65% of all residential institutes, refuses to apologize for their role. And there are calls for them, even from the United Nations now, to release all the documents relating to what happened. So what needs to happen right now? We begin our coverage today with the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Perry Bellegarde, and the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief, Bobby Cameron. Chiefs, great to have both of you back on the program. Um, I'm going to start with you, Chief Bellegarde, and, and I'll, let's just start with the investigation. Uh, yes, the RCMP has confirmed they've opened an investigation. Justice Sinclair has already called it heavy-handed. What do you make of that and how this has to proceed? 
Well, it's got to be done in a very respectful way that 215 children are speaking, waking up everybody across Canada. You know, it's a validation of what the survivors have been saying for years. Nobody can deny the horrific evidence that's there. There has to be independent investigations on all the 130 residential school sites. That's what has to happen. And yes, a lot of these are crime scenes. So the RCMP have to be involved. The coroners have to be involved. Mm. First Nations leaders have to be involved. And the elders have to be involved. But it has to begin. Uh, this is something, again, the 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, how many of them are implemented? You know, we can go line by line by line. More energy and effort has to get done to implement those 94 calls to action. And that's what has to begin. I've always said it before, Evan, there's two things that hurt First Nations people in Canada. The genocide of the residential schools and then the imposition of the Indian Act in 1876, which was colonization oppression. We couldn't leave the reserve without a permit till 51, no access to a lawyer till 1951. And it basically is colonization. It opened up the land and resources for exploitation. And so between those two things, you see the intergenerational trauma and the effects on First Nations people. So now we have to get all of this research done, this investigation done properly, and truth really comes before reconciliation and healing. Yeah. yeah. Chief, Chief Cameron, uh, I want to get you to weigh in because the federal government just released <clears throat> this $27 million last week after the horrific discovery at Kamloops. What does that tell you about the process and how does that money need to be used? Yeah, before I go there, I just want to make it really clear for everybody out there. For many of our survivors, those places were places of torture, abuse, and death. Torture, abuse, and death. And currently, there's a lot of mistrust with the RCMP as it is. So we need our survivors working side by side with any investigation at these residential school sites. With the 27 million being announced just the other day, it's welcoming, it's a good start because now we can get to work uh, to verify all those stories that we've heard for many, many decades from our survivors. It has been told time and time again. And now the world is now believing us. This is a worldwide travesty. Chief Cameron, let me just stay with you. Um, because you talk about the trust issue with the RCMP and the government, and I think you're very wise to focus on that and that's going to be critical because there are crime scenes as Chief Belgard said. What's your words to the Catholic Church right now because the other issue is documentation and identifying documents. And I know the Pope's apology is one of the calls to actions. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done that. But what is your word, sir, to, to the Catholic Church right now? Well, we would say this, that they had no right or no business to destroy any records. Let that be the responsibility of those survivors and their families. Let the direction come from, from each and every one of them across Canada. It's simple as that. National Chief Bellegarde, the church plays a big role here. I know we're talking a lot about the federal government. What is your message to the church? What does the church need to do right now? Well, I believe, uh, again, going back to uh, call to action number 58, which is the papal apology. Uh, out of all the churches in Canada, uh, a lot of them have already apologized. The one yet to apologize is the Roman Catholic Church. And a lot of the survivors have been calling for that, to come from His Holiness, uh, to come to Canada to make that apology to the survivors and the families here. So that's number one. Number two, open up their records, open up their archives, open up their information to help and aid in this research that's so desperately needed to track these, these little children. You know, there's a lot of death and there's a lot of records that have to be accessed. 
So don't fight the survivors. Don't fight the leadership. Don't fight what's going on with this proper investigation. They should open up their archives and their information so that we have access to all the records to document. These are forgot. These are children. Mm. It was a genocide. I keep saying this was a genocide of our people. No one can deny that. And so we've got to really work together collaboratively and bring all the parties involved so that we can deal with this in a very humane, respectful, spiritual way. Chief Cameron, I just... We're going to talk about Kamloops because of the 215 kids that are in this unmarked grave. We don't even know who they are. But there's going, as Murray Sinclair said, there's a lot more sites. How many, in your mind, will we be seeing many more of these unmarked mass graves? You know, we're probably into the hundreds right now. The Muscogan First Nation has revealed they have 35 unmarked graves, and, and there's more. We were up in the North Battleford area. There's more there. Uh, there's more in Labrette. Uh, there's more. And we're talking about the hunters just in our region. So we got to get this right. You got to have the survivors fully involved from start to finish. For all of those federal government leaders and the RCMP, you must have the survivors fully involved. Otherwise, this is going to fail. Include the survivors, please. The current process that the federal government is on in challenging certain uh, legislation or laws are, are not working. We must and we need to immediately go on a different path in the area of reconciliation under the direction and guidance of our survivors and our families right across this country on our First Nation territories. The best solutions are right there at the First Nation level. Chief Cameron, National Chief Bellegarde, uh, your voices have been powerful along with so many other leaders as we continue to reckon uh, with this uh, ongoing s story and history. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Jenny. Coming up, the government's response. They've promised $27 million to help Indigenous communities locate children who died at residential schools. Why has that money been so long delayed? What will they do now? The Indigenous Services Minister, Mark Miller, responds next. Stay right here with Question Period. So what does the road to justice look like in the wake of the discovery of 215 children in an unmarked grave in the Kamloops, B.C. Residential Institute? Well, the federal government says part of that journey includes $27 million in earmarked back in 2019 to locate unmarked graves and identify remains. So far, not a dollar of that money has been distributed, even as communities say there are many more unmarked graves to be found and examined. Why not? How many more Kamloops-like tragedies? might there be. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is also demanding that the Pope apologize for the Catholic Church involvement in the system. They ran the Kamloops Institute that stole Indigenous kids from their parents. I think it's going to be a really important moment for all of us, particularly Catholics across the country, uh, to reach out uh, in our local parishes, to reach out to bishops and cardinals, uh, and uh, make it clear that we expect the Church uh, to take up and uh, step up and take responsibility. But will the government pressure the Catholic Church to release all their hidden documents before they're destroyed? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller. Minister, I know it's been a very difficult last uh, more than a week now, so thanks for joining us. Why did it take the federal government uh, to be confronted, frankly, with the tragedy 
of the discovery of the remains of these 215 children to suddenly release that $27 million uh, to help find more remains? Well, look, Evan, this has been a difficult week for reconciliation. Frankly, a stark reminder that the truth comes first. Um, I'm not going to give any excuses for, for the reasons why this money wasn't um, distributed earlier. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was part of a, bu a budget process in, in 2019. Uh, the Kamloops uh, communities have been doing this for over a decade. They put a lot of work into it. Uh, they were funded in part by a heritage grant. Uh, these are things that are very painful to do. They take a long time. Uh, I guess in light of this tragedy, want to be clear, the federal government will be there for communities that want to undertake these searches and deploy any expertise we have, whether it's with the armed forces that have an archaeological team or others to help these communities along the way, along with provincial governments that have all indicated their support. So how, um, how, how is that going to work, though? Like, okay, you, you know, you, the federal government saying, okay, here's $27 million. We don't know how that's going to be allocated. The armed forces will help. Uh, but I understand the communities have ceremony. We all understand there's a process here. You just can't rush in and start digging. But the RCMP is, has already opened an investigation, for example, in Kamloops, and Justice Sinclair has said they're ham-handed. They've offended the community already. What does that tell you about the process? Well, certainly it's the, it's the potential of a crime scene, and it's also uh, probably perhaps considered sacred, and the communities are in deep mourning. Um, and we have to respect that process. If there's anything we've heard from those communities, as we reach out to give them mental health support, is they need their space. Uh, we've closed off the airspace in and around the Camelot Residential School because of people going in there with drones. Um, we'll be there for the community, but my point in all this, and I don't want it to sound equivocal like the federal government won't be there, but communities have to be front and center. That's precisely what the calls to action say, and that's what we'll do with other nations. There are nations that, frankly, are not at that point where they want to revisit these things. They won't go into these places. There are some that have turned these institutes into uh, a hotel or a commemoration event. Uh, place, but we will uh, we'll be there for it, and we will we will give you the resources and the particular expertise that the government will support, as well as the provinces. The key to any justice, as you know, is going to be real records, um, as you know. The federal, will the federal government subpoena the Catholic Church records before they can be destroyed? You know, it, there is a subpoena process that exists as part of any sort of criminal investigation and court process. Um, functionally, the Attorney General of Canada, in contrast to his American counterpart, doesn't have the power to issue these summary subpoenas. Uh, but it starts with a, a, a discussion and negotiation with the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, the truth needs to be unveiled. Uh, and wherever these records lie, if and when investigation is opened, uh, we'll expect the Catholic Church. Are you concerned the Church you know, we heard the Archbishop of uh, Vancouver saying we're going to comply, but no one's seen a lot of these documents. Are you concerned now that before these are exposed, given what's happening, given that the church refuses to apologize, um, are you concerned the church is going to destroy records? Well, look, despite my criticism of the church over the last few days, uh, I have confidence that the church will respect the court process. I have no indication to the contrary. Um, at the same time, there are Indigenous people in mourning today. Um, the lack of an apology that, in fact, was, as you know, was given by the Anglican Church, United Church, and Presbyterian Churches, comprehensive apologies, right. was not given by the Catholic Church, and it needs to be done. You can't do that, and you can't close wounds unless you get that apology. I'll, 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 I'll add that there's a number of indigenous people that, that, that don't care about the Catholic Church, and I get that as well, but there are a number of others. But, but well, really why do you, sorry, just let me just quickly, why, Minister, would you have confidence in the Catholic Church? What gives you confidence? They've never apologized. 
They never paid the actual, the full amount of compensation that they were supposed to pay in the first place. Uh, in the statement of the bishops, they didn't even mention the fact that they ran the Kamloops uh, institution. Why, why would you be confident at all that they would be forthright and honest about something that they have never even taken responsibility for? Look, I mean, perhaps I'm naive, but I'm a man of faith. I'm not Catholic, I'm Protestant. Uh, I've spent time in those institutions. I have good faith uh, in others. I, I, I am hopeful in all this. Um, I also expect people, regardless of my mental, my, my mental frame in this, I expect people to follow a uh, court process. And if, there's a, if there is any uh, suspicion that these documents would be eventually subpoenaed, then those institutions have an obligation. The credibility of the government has been challenged by not only opposition leaders, but a lot of Indigenous leaders who say, on one hand, you say we're there to support Indigenous communities in the process of reconciliation. On the other hand, you're literally in the process of taking child, Indigenous children to court. On June 11th, your government is back in court to fight the decision of the Human Rights Tribunal, which concluded that Indigenous kids were badly treated by the welfare system. They concluded each of these kids since 2006 deserve a $40,000 award. Indigenous leaders have repeatedly asked the federal government to stop the legal fight. Will you stop it? Why are you fighting these children? Well, I want to be clear on that with, with people because there seems to be a, a bit of misunderstanding. And to be clear, every First Nation child that was removed and treated unfairly, discriminated against by the, by, by the child removal system will be justly and fairly compensated. Uh, we are having discussions with parties to class actions where the same group of litigants largely overlap. So there is some complexity to it. Let me remind you also that the CHRT awarded $40,000 for children, whether they spent a day in care justly or unjustly, or 20 years. There are some children with that have, that have suffered horrible effects and abuse of the health uh, child care system that de deserve more, frankly. And that is the place where we want to be. We think that's best located within the discussions that are situated within the class actions that are competing. We are in confidential discussions. I got to leave it there. Um, Minister Mark Miller, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Evan. Coming up, the mix and match age is upon us. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization says... Yes, you can mix and match your vaccines. Is there enough data to actually back that up? We'll find out next. The Scrum is here with our special guest, Dr. Josh Reimer, Manitoba's medical lead for vaccine implementation. Stay right here with Question Period. So after weeks of waiting, the more than 2 million Canadians who have received the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine will finally be able to get a different second dose. Either AstraZeneca of Covishield vaccine or an mRNA, so Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna vaccine for their second dose. The National Advisory Council on Immunization said that studies on mixing and matching from Spain and Germany are enough to give the new strategy the green light. The reason for the change? The extremely rare but still some blood clots tied to AstraZeneca. Health Canada estimates the risks of those serious blood clots, by the way, to be 1 in 83,000 with the first shot of AstraZeneca. Studies out of the UK show the risk after a second dose of AstraZeneca plummets to 1 in 600,000. So for Canadians, though, who got the Pfizer and Moderna as the first shot, NASI says those vaccines can be considered essentially interchangeable. So we're not saying just go ahead and keep swap those two doses. Try and find the same vaccine, same mRNA vaccine. But if you can't for some reason... Uh, then um, they consider them interchangeable. But one problem, NASI admits there's, quote, no data currently existing 
on the interchangeability of COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. So if there's no data, why is NASI recommending that you can mix and match Pfizer and Moderna? To answer all that, let's bring in the scrum. Joyce Napier is the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief. She's joins us alongside Tonda McCharles, parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is Dr. Joss Reimer, Manitoba's medical lead for vaccine implementation task force. Great to have all of you here. And I know the situation remains very difficult in Manitoba, doctor. Uh, so thanks for your work on that. Why did your province and why do you think NASI actually gave the green light for mixing and matching when they, on one hand, they say there's no data to show you should really be able to do that. I think most of the decision really comes from what we've seen over decades of research and experience with uh, other vaccines. So we've seen that in the vast majority of circumstances, switching products and often even switching vaccine types still results in great protection. And it's something that we do with influenza. It's something that we do with hepatitis. So we have a lot of experience doing this in the past. And what these tr small trials did is, is reassure us that it doesn't look like the COVID vaccines will be different than our previous experience. So even though they're small trials and we're early in the, the science on this exact vaccine, so far it's looking quite consistent with what we already know about other vaccines. But, but Doc, just let me just stay with you. These are mRNA vaccines. They've never been used before, so they're new. They're different from past vaccines. And again, if we're supposed to, quote, follow the science, some might wonder, is this a big human experiment that's being conducted here and in France and Germany that we don't have data for? Well, in some ways, uh, during a pandemic, everything we do is, is a big human experiment because we're all having to learn together at the same time about what works the best. But we do have good data uh, from animal models showing great immune response when products were switched. And like I said, this is quite consistent with the baseline uh, research and experience we have with other vaccines. And so we feel confident that the immune response would be similar with these ones as well. But that doesn't mean we don't keep looking because sometimes research does surprise us. So it is really important that we do these trials to make sure we're not missing something. Tonda, just give me your read. I mean, if there's no data, Canadians are keep saying, here, follow the science, follow the science. Well, we don't really have the full science. Is the government or NASI being forced into do this mixing and matching, frankly, because we've had issues around AstraZeneca, we've just had a shortage and there's concern about the new variants? Well, the government did admit that. Dr. Cham admitted that. NASI did say a lot of their decision-making is because of vaccine supply and the limited uh, influx of different products at different times. But look, I mean, I think that we had been hearing from a lot of experts, even before the limited studies that are out now, predicting that this would actually be a good strategy to use. Um, I'm no doctor. Uh, I note that, you know, while there's no data around the interchangeability of the mRNA vaccines, they're the ones that seem to be performing the best in all of this. And so, you know, maybe Canadians can take some comfort in that, but uh, I think that it, it, it's a strategy that vaccine, vaccinologists, uh, you know, say is a good one. So. Um, I think the doctor kind of hit a point where all kind of doing things a bit on the fly in this pandemic and really right now it's a race against the variants, isn't it? Yeah, Joyce, just weigh in because I think there's 2 million plus Canadians with AstraZeneca that are, are kind of wondering, should I, should I jump off the AstraZeneca train and onto the mRNA train? Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. 
Well, you know, that, that's, that's the answer. I don't know. Uh, we don't know. Look, we're not scientists, as, as Thomas says. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not either. Uh, but what I do know is I, I feel um, sort of reassured uh, when the science is followed. But what study are we basing this on? Or are we the study? Um, and, and in a lot of cases, as the doctor said, look, this is a pandemic. We were asked from the way beginning to park our individuality for the sake of the collective. And so we have done a lot of things that we never did before. Um, you know, I hesitate to say that mixing these mRNA vaccines is, is the right thing to do because we don't know, the doctor doesn't know, and you know, I think NACI doesn't know. We're just betting that this is the right thing. Look, we bet that waiting months between two shots was the right thing, and it turned out to be the right thing. Now we have to hurry up and get those second mm. shots in people's arms, but that was the right bet. So who am I to say that mixing you know, these vaccines right. is not a good thing? All I'm saying is that the communication is terrible uh, the information we have is minimal and you know go ahead jump let me go to an area that maybe Tonda and Joyce and I are a little more comfortable from the actual medicine to the politics uh, Tonda the US is giving other countries uh, President Biden said 25 million doses they don't need them uh, Canada is going to share 6 million of those doses with several uh, many countries uh, these are Moderna and Astra's and, and uh, Pfizer should Canada given how many vaccines we've got should Canada from a political point of view take those this raises the same question that we saw um, uh, within the last two months around whether Canada should have taken um, vaccines it had contracted for and paid for under the COVAX facility the global share vaccine sharing facility that really was meant to boost developing countries and their capacity to vaccinate their populations it's the same question I think we'll hear the same criticisms um, I think that weighing into that now is where there was scarcity now apparently there is an influx there's there's going to be two to two and a half million of Pfizer vaccines delivered weekly from now till the end of August in theory that's more than enough to vaccinate the Canadian population. So I think that's a political question we'll see. We'll also see the government politically grapple with at the G7 next week, the question of whether it ought to donate vaccines of its own, the ones that we are building up in our own surplus. Yeah, we've got a lot, Joyce, but speed matters. People want to open up. Provinces are trying to open up to avoid, as the doctor said, the variant. Um, and then there's the protocols on the border. Just real quick to you, uh, for example, some people are saying, look, I, I got two doses of Pfizer in the U.S. I'm still forced to quarantine for two weeks here. Do border protocols need to be extended or at least changed as people's second doses are actually changing? Well, obviously, they need to be changed. Obviously, that's just logic. Uh, if you've had two vaccines and the elapsed time has, has passed that you need those two weeks after that second shot, then why would you have to self-isolate if not because of punitive measures imposed by Canada? On the other hand, the Americans want to open that border. Um, they want to open it really bad, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on the federal government to just relent, open that border. You know, vaccination campaigns on both sides are doing well. But you've got the Ontario government who's asking the federal government to tighten those border restrictions. So continue the punitive measures. Those silly hotels, the three-day, you know, sojourn in a hotel that even the science is telling the politicians, it's totally useless. Stop doing that. They keep doing it. And that's political. That is definitely political. Yeah, of course. And 
of course, because everyone's prepping for an upcoming election. So welcome to the politics. In the meantime, we're still deep in the pandemic. Um, okay, I got to leave it there. Dr. Reimer, thank you for your work and always for coming on to communicate with us. I really appreciate that. Uh, Tana and Joyce are going to stick around. Coming up with the search for unmarked burial sites at residential institutions just beginning. There are now calls for the Catholic Church to release all the records and to apologize. But we are going to turn to Mitchell Garabedian. He's the lawyer who has fought the Catholic Church for decades on behalf of survivors of sexual abuse to get at sealed church documents. He joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. No apology and few records. The Catholic Church ran the Kamloops Residential Institute where the remains of 215 children were found in that mass grave. But unlike other churches who have now formally apologized for their role in the system, the Pope refuses to do so. But more than just an apology, the church has also not released all its records about what happened inside those institutions. The fact that there are still church records that have not been revealed, that have not been made available to uh, the National Center or to us at the TRC that related to this uh, is also a sad commentary on the lack of the commitment by the Catholic Church. We have a guest who has represented hundreds of survivors of sexual abuse in the church around the world and has fought the church in places like Boston uh, so he can get access and victims can get access to records. His name is Mitchell Garabedian. Now you might know him. He was portrayed by the actor Stanley Tucci in the Academy Award winning movie Spotlight. Look at this. I know I did. But this is Boston, and the church does not want them to be found. So what lessons can leaders fighting for access for records about what happened inside these residential institutions in Canada learn from the decades-long fight that survivors of sexual abuse against the church have had? Let's find out. Joining us now is Mitchell Garabedian. Uh, Mr. Garabedian, good to have you back on the program. Thank you. Um, first, uh, you've represented children abused by the church for decades around the world, including here in Canada. When you heard about the mass grave of the 215 unidentified children in Kamloops, what was your reaction? Sadly, I was not surprised. It's shocking, of course, but I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, there have been hundreds, if not thousand, victims of clergy sexual abuse who have committed suicide as a result of being sexually abused, thousands of children. I'm not surprised because the Catholic Church acts in secrecy. It's not held accountable. The big issue here is not just the formal apology, which is not forthcoming, but access to all the records. What advice would you give Indigenous leaders and communities who are looking uh, for the Catholic Church to disclose all the records, even the federal government has called for this. What advice would you give them of how to get access to those? Subpoena the secret files of the Catholic Church. Under canon law, the Archbishop has secret files on the canon 489, 490, other canons surrounding those canons. He has access to the secret files, and in those secret files, are records of criminal acts relating to morality. Now, those records are only going to be kept for a certain amount of time, but summaries of those records have to be kept in for eternity. Those records are very important. In Boston, it took me three and a half years through the courts to go through the process of obtaining the secret files. And once I obtained the secret files, there were tens of thousands of pages 
indicating that uh, Catholic priests had sexually abused children and supervisors were complicit. Supervisors such as Bernard Cardinal Law, who within a very short period of time after the revelation of those secret files, left and was transferred to the Vatican. Okay, uh, some people listening to you, and I just want people to appreciate this, there's been a lot of coverage of this. You, you use terms like secret files. That's actually a church term, and you talk about Canon 487. Can you just break down exactly what you're talking about? This is not some conspiracy theory. I, just from a legal point no, of view, no. exactly what, and, and if this is relevant to Canada. Canon, canon law is the law of the church, of the Catholic church. Canon 489 and 490 says the, the head of the diocese, the archbishop in this case, shall keep secret files under lock and key. And the archbishop is the only one who has the key to the secret files. And those secret files concern matters uh, of morals and matters of criminality. And they can be destroyed, as I mentioned earlier, after a period of time, but summaries of those records have to be kept in the secret files. No one else can gain access to those files without the archbishop's permission. Well, why, why, why can't, I mean, you've, you, so this is, this is a real issue, and I know you did gain access to those uh, in the case in Boston, but why can't, if this is a crime scene now, why can't these simply be subpoenaed and the church would be forced to open up those records? They should be subpoenaed, but they should be subpoenaed immediately. Now, the church is going to claim that this is pr protected through uh, the religious charter in Canada, um, freedom of religion. But the argument is uh, uh, the government has a right to records which indicate misconduct, not religious belief, but misconduct, not just conduct. If you want to worship on a chair, you can worship somebody on a chair. But if you're committing a criminal act, a moral act, the government has a right to those records. And in a civil court, the plaintiffs have a right to those records. And as we're speaking, I'm concerned that the archbishop is burning those records. But the they, government should act right away. What advice, and again, just from a strictly legal point of view, would you give these communities right now, as there may be many more mass graves? There has to be action through the courts. The government must act right away. It must subpoena these records right away so that these records are not destroyed. It must obtain an order preventing the archbishop from destroying the records. Some dioceses will have a bonfire and, and burn the records and turn around and claim, oh, the records is destroyed. Uh, we don't have the records you want. I'm sorry. Or they'll sanitize the records. Now, if the if the Catholic Church has committed crimes and they're supposed to give the government records, they're probably going to look at these records and say the, the Catholic Church is going to look at these records and say we have to redact some names. We have to redact some information because former Bishop so and so may be may be guilty of a crime here for for his allowance of the death of these children. We have to act. Very, you have to act very swiftly and very cautiously. The facts speak for themselves. There are thousands of children who were, who 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 died in these residential schools, and it was never revealed until recently. Now, how do you trust an entity to self-police and come forward with the truth? You can't. Government has to act quickly. Ms. Garabedian, I know this is something that you continue to represent many survivors of sexual abuse uh, in the church. I really appreciate your perspective on this today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
All right, when we come back, does the discovery of this mass unmarked grave of 215 children spell a reckoning for Canada's colonial past? Is it time to rethink how figures like Sir John A. Macdonald are treated in Canada? What about those statues? There's been a big debate about that, and we'll take it up right here next on Question Period. Is this really the moment for political leaders to debate cancel culture? Well, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney clearly thinks so. After the discovery of 215 children's remains at the Residential Institute in Kamloops, BC, the old debate about historical figures like Sir John A. Macdonald and others re-emerged. How to deal with the fact that Sir John A. was one of the architects of the residential school system. Well, the Municipal Council of Charlottetown and PEI has already voted to remove the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald from their downtown core. You got Ryerson University students and some professors calling for that institute to change its name because Egerton Ryerson was another architect of the residential system. But Premier Kenny argues this is all just a slippery slope of cancel culture. It is an imperfect country, but it is still a great country, just as John McDonald was an imperfect man, but was still a great leader. Uh, if we want to get into uh, cancelling every uh, f figure in our history, who had uh, who, who took positions on on issues at the time that we now judge harshly and rightly uh, in, in in historical retrospective. But if that's the new standard, then um, I think almost the entire founding leadership of our country gets cancelled. Then Prime Minister Trudeau spoke about this on Friday. Check this out. There are uh, lots of really important conversations to have, and I think we need to have them uh, as. Uh, as Canadians who grapple with uh, a past that is not just a historical past, but a past that has impacts on the present right now. So how does Canada move forward with reconciliation when these conflicts about historical memory persist? How does the Prime Minister address these issues when so many institutions are named after the very first Prime Minister, by the way, including the building where he participates in press conferences every week? Is this cancel culture or is this stolen victimization where cancel culture proponents are stealing the position of victimhood from the lost indigenous children. To have that debate, the Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief is back. So is Tonda McCharles, parliamentary reporter for The Star. And our special guest this round is the Chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, Professor Pam Palminer. All right, great to have everyone back and thanks for joining us. Pam, you work at Ryerson University. I know there's a big uh, debate about that. But what did you make of uh, Premier Kenny's comment that this is a slippery slope and cancel culture will eventually uh, cancel all sorts of leaders who are judged by today's standards? Well, my first concern was how egotistical and self-centered of him to draw the attention to him at a time when the whole nation is mourning the mass grave of 215 children in Chiquetmic territory. So that's not something that a leader does. And and second of all, he's really blowing the whole situation out of out of you know uh, proportion. You simply cannot cancel out the fact that certain individuals were prime ministers or ministers or or policy analysts in this country. That's always going to be the history. That's always going to be in the history books. What we're talking about is stop obsessing obsessively celebrating them all over the country on every street corner at every um, you know park at every school I mean does that really reflect the values that we have in this country and I and I and many others argue that it doesn't 
Joyce, Joyce weigh, weigh in on this, this cancel culture and the slippery slope and, and how to deal with these historical figures like Sir John A. or others. But, you know, uh, removing statues is, look, I'll leave that up to municipalities and I'll leave that to the political debaters about whether or not we should remove statues. I think it's, an, it's, it's something that can be done because you can't change history, you can't change what's happening in Kamloops, uh, you can't change the horror of it, but you can take out a statue and maybe it makes you feel a little bit better. I think what is more important now is to teach our children, the next generations, and indeed the generation, even my generation, uh, about what happened that so that we never forget and so that we know because there's a lot of Canadians that don't know what happened in these schools this was ignored in history books in Canada children were not taught about this I asked that question years ago after the Truth uh, and Reconciliation Commission I asked the question to my colleagues were you taught this in school and most of them said no so what is more important than moving statues go ahead move all the statues change names of streets that is all fine and dandy. I'll leave that to, to people who want to debate those things. What I think should be done is teach generations to come, teach these generations here about what happened so that we never forget and we know the history, the real history of Canada. Uh, Tonda, this notion of cancel culture in the last number of years has been a big political cleavage, right? It's been used on both sides politically. We're, we may be coming into an election very soon, and clearly people are preparing. This has been one of those moments that cancel culture and statues being deployed. How does this debate now play out politically? And what, is it, what cleavages does it have now? How might this play out in a possible election scenario? I don't see it actually being an election issue per se. What it speaks to is, um, in, in the political parties' sense, they often talk in terms of how they want to frame freedom of, freedom of expression, for example. So, look, what I see uh, this is, Joyce said we need to teach other, you know, the younger generations. In fact, the younger generations are finally now being taught uh, this history. And the whole question of statues and symbols, actually, when, if it's not up to us, I can tell you that the young people in my circle and in my family and their friends, they already have made up their minds about this. And if we don't take care of it, they will. They will get rid of those statues. It, it is not a problem for them. What is interesting is the things that positively political parties and governments can do. And one of the, one of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to establish a national memorial where there would be uh, a statue and something to commemorate the loss of the kids in the residential schools and something that would allow for the tomb of an unknown child, for example. I mean, there is a positive affirmation of this very terrible tragedy that the federal government and all political parties can get behind. Where is that? That's not anywhere. So I think there are positive acts that we will see political parties adopt, but as for it as a voting issue or a political division in that respect, I don't see it's a, a, it's a vote decider, shall we say. Yeah, and, and look, symbols matter in politics. I appreciate that, but actions matter more in the wake of the horrifying discovery at Kamloops. Pam, what are the biggest real challenges that all parties face, where government or opposition, uh, on, on the issue of how to move forward. I know everyone says now we've got to move on the, on the actions in the truth and reconciliation. We, we keep hearing words, but what do you, in your view, real concrete actions, what do we need to see? 
Well, we just need to see the bare minimum here as a sign of good faith. I mean, it's been years that we had those Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action from 71 to 76 to say, locate these unmarked graves and mass graves, help First Nations return these children back to their home communities, divulge documents like the Catholic Church is refusing to hand over documents. But that also includes provincial governments and, and federal governments and other churches involved in this. I mean, these are minimum steps that could be taken to address the harms that continue. Because keep in mind, although that residential school is closed, the family members are still living. They're going right. through this trauma. They want their children back home. And then what about all of the other World Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls? The federal government and provincial governments continue to fall behind decade after decade of inaction. They've all got to get themselves together and take some concrete action to make some real change. So we're not doing this 10 years from now and 20 years from now calling for action. Tonda, uh, again, this is going to play out in, in various ways. I, I, again, I just keep thinking, you know, what would happen after this week? What will happen if there's another pipeline protest? You know, what yeah. would happen with the wet sweat? And how does this break down on political lines? Uh, because we're going to come to a campaign and these are going to be the big issues. You know, I think that it's already breaking down on political lines. Look, the debate, the take note debate around the drama and the tragedy of Kamloops this week that was held in, the par in Parliament in the House of Commons saw all parties trying to uh, appear unified and in the desire for action. However, when it came to detailed questions around, for example, do you support the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and their um, ability to have control over their resources and lands, the Conservative Party said, oh, we don't want to have a partisan debate, but in fact, it still opposes that concept if it amounts to a veto. So those, those questions are already, I think, still finding you know, uh, division within the Parliament of Canada. It's not a unified vote. Some of those bills that are in the Senate right now around the United Nations Declaration, um, I think we'll see that debate still alive. I don't think you'll see unanimity. Yeah, it's not even close to the end of this story, and it's not the end of uh, political divisiveness on this stuff. Okay, I got to leave it there. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Pam Palmer, Tonda McCharles, Joyce Napier. Great to have the three of you on the program. That is question period for this week. Thank you so much for watching and engaging in these really important debates around the country. I will see you on Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night, and we will be back here in seven short days. I hope you can very soon. Hug your loved ones if it's safe, and thanks for watching.